Connects talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevic. Thanks for coming today. So I'm going to start us off with a story about new research showing how air pollution may trigger lung cancer. Now, the link between air pollution and um, cancer, specifically lung cancer, has long been known to scientists. Um, and it's known that pollution can lead to an increased risk of lung cancer in people who don't smoke. However, up until now, the exact reasons for that have remained unknown. So now scientists have found a mechanism that may help explain exactly how pollutants in the air can turn cells cancerous. Researchers at the Francis Crick Institute and University College London in the UK have found how air pollution can trigger the activation of cells that have existing genetic mutations to form cancer. So the researchers propose through their research findings, that particulate matter 2.5 micrometers in diameter or smaller, also just known as PM 2.5, can induce additional changes in cells lining the airways um, in the respiratory tract that have mutations in the EGFR or epidermal growth factor receptor or um, the KRAS um, or KRAS proto-oncogenes. And these genes are commonly found to be mutated in lung cancers like non-small cell lung cancer. Approximately half of people with lung cancer who are non-smokers have EGFR mutations. Now, over 250,000 lung cancer deaths worldwide are attributable to PM2.5 pollution specifically. Um, and this is a number, uh, the 250,000 uh, lung cancer deaths globally every year. And uh, so PM 2.5 pollution is typically emitted in vehicle exhaust, as well as the burning of fossil fuels. And PM 2.5 includes the smallest air pollutants, and they're among the most dangerous because they can travel deep into lung tissue when they are inhaled. And when inhaled, the um, the particulate matter, the PM2.5, can enter the bloodstream and lead to conditions like asthma, cardiovascular disease, as well as other respiratory illnesses. Now, getting back to the research findings, uh, which were presented at the European Society for Medical Oncology Presidential Symposium in Paris last week, um, the new research is very significant because a recent World Health Organization report showed that 99% of people in the world are actually breathing poor quality air. And um, I, I had a piece that I wrote on about this on, um, I think it was... Uh, sorry, the name is just on World Health Day, Health Day, that's right, back in April. And uh, so the researchers um, of this uh, study found that the incidence of lung cancers 
again, not caused by smoking, was higher in places that had higher levels of air pollution. So again, not surprising, but the uh, scientists really wanted to hone in on a mechanism of action as to why this is the case. So going back to the EGFR and KRAS mutations, so once again, as I mentioned, they're commonly found in lung cancer, not caused by smoking, but alone, they're not quite enough to trigger cancer. So in fact, um, you know, according to statistics, one in every 600,000 cells in the lungs, for example, of a healthy, you know, 50 year old already contains potentially cancerous mutations. So what exactly is up? So the double hit hypothesis is the conventional kind of uh, hypothesis that can explain the development of a lot of cancers. And that's basically where having a mutation in one copy of a gene implicated in a cancer, such as EGFR or KRAS in the case of lung cancer, isn't enough to lead to um, the tumor, the malignant uh, or the malignant tumor. So most cancers, again, follow the double hit model where a mutation in the second copy of the gene is required for the cancer to actually form. So the new research shows that air pollutants can actually be that second hit. However, instead of inducing new mutations, the new research shows that PM 2.5 pollutants can actually switch on the existing mutations to cause cancer. So Professor Charles Swanton, who's a scientist at the Francis Crick Institute and chief clinician at Cancer Research UK, who presented the findings at the meeting last week, the scientific meeting, said that they found driver mutations in EGFR and KRAS genes commonly found in lung cancers, and they're present in normal lung tissue and are likely a consequence of aging. So the way that the researchers think um, PM 2.5 uh, pollutants act on existing mutations is that these pollutants lead to the release of an inflammatory cytokine called interleukin-1 beta or IL-1 beta. And this uh, particular cytokine, of course, causes inflammation and activates cells to repair damage. And of course, we know inflammation is associated with cancer. So the researchers performed a combination of human and animal experiments to look at a potential link between PM 2.5 pollution and cancer risk. What they did is that they analyzed epidemiological data from over 460,000 individuals across several different countries. And they performed ultra deep genomic profiling of normal lung tissue samples, as well as tissues exposed to particulate matter both human and mouse tissues. And then they examined the effects of the particulate matter on tumor promotion in mouse lung cancer models. And so for the first part of the study, the epidemiological part, they found that PM 2.5 levels were associated with an increased risk of EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer in England, South Korea, and Taiwan and an increased risk of mesothelioma, <clears throat> lung, anal, small intestine, and glioblastoma, as well as lip, oral cavity, and pharynx, and laryngeal carcinomas in samples from the UK Biobank. So based on the results, the researchers suggest that oncogenic mutations may be necessary but insufficient for tumor formation, and that the data reveal a mechanistic basis for PM uh, or particulate matter-driven lung cancer in the absence of classical carcinogen-driven mutagenesis. 
And the researchers also found in their animal studies that exposure to air pollution made mice more susceptible to EGFR or KRAS mutations and led to an increase in the number, size, and grade of cancers in the mice. And then the researchers were also able to inhibit cancer formations in mice exposed to air pollution by using an IL-1 beta inhibitor. So once again, the mechanism of action being proposed here is that air pollutants um, lead to um, activation or greater uh, secretion of IL-1 beta, which leads to inflammation. And so if you go in with an inhibitor to block IL-1 beta activity, they were able to inhibit cancer formation in mice that were exposed to air pollution. So um, the scientists say that this research is, you know, uh, very exciting, of course, and provides evidence to uh, limit air pollution. Also, it presents opportunities for molecular targeted cancer prevention. Prevention. So what this means is that you could potentially prevent cancer with a pill. Um, and the idea would be that a drug like an IL-1 beta inhibitor could be used to prevent the cancer causing effects of air pollutants like PM 2.5. And uh, so basically, you can envision that what would happen is that people living in very highly polluted areas could essentially take a cancer blocking pill uh, to protect against cancer. And, um, you know, it's not just air pollution, of course, that could have um, a preventative pill, because there are hundreds of other carcinogens that are linked to cancer, but their mechanism of actions are unclear. So this new research kind of paves the way or kind of opens up the possibilities of exploring um, similar mechanisms of action uh, for other carcinogens and also, you know, opens up the possibility for a preventative uh, route to uh, preventing cancer, essentially. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this new research. Are you uh, intrigued, surprised? And what do you think about, you know, living in a highly polluted area and taking a pill to prevent cancer? Does that sound kind of, how does that sound to you? Well, yeah, this new research, I think, was really groundbreaking because I think before people used to assume that, oh, okay, well, air pollution, like, directly causes uh, these mutations instead of yeah. waking up cells that already have these mutations. Right. So it was kind of groundbreaking in the way that like the mechanism of action of air pollution to um, wake up cancer cells was new. I do think like the study does show how the quality of the environment and human health are so closely linked that it just highlights the importance of like having a clean environment and like how these environmental regulations that governments put in are put in to like not only for other organisms that we share the environment with but also to like for us right yeah, for human, for health, human as health as well yeah um and i think that if it comes to the point where humans need to take a pill to prevent <laughs> getting lung cancer that's really scary like you yeah. know i hope that never happens i can understand putting on like sunscreen to to prevent skin cancer because of like uv rays but if it comes to the point where now i have to take a pill because i live in a city in north america like that would just be really scary i i don't think it's ever going to come to that um just because i think where we live there's a 
still very good air quality. However, I know that other places in the world, they don't have that um, advantage, but I really hope it doesn't come to that point, right? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like, why would you want to get to that point? Although some places are already at that point, which is, you yeah. know, scary enough. And this is just more incentive to clean up our act, right? right? So yeah, and, and this sort of act cleaning up would involve compliance from like mm. all industries. And we've seen in the past that, you know, money and greed yeah. often take precedence over, you know, the general well-being and health of both the environment and, and people. Um, just for example, like a few years ago, there was that whole like auto scandal with Volkswagen, um, you know, having lied about their emissions. Yeah. And, you know, we believed it for a while because we had no reason not to. And that caused so much damage. And and I feel like a lot of this damage is irreparable. Like we can we could try to improve, but the damage is already done in, yeah. in many places around the world. And yeah, we are we are very lucky to be living somewhere where our air quality is is fine for now. Um, but we are putting a lot of trust in um, you know, all industries that emit pollution or, you know, greenhouse gases. And I feel like that's all industries. Um, so yeah, it's kind of grim, but I think we need this wake up call, um, mm -hmm. you know, to sort of get things into motion. Um, so yeah, even though this, the results of that study, like sound obvious to me, like it, it doesn't, nothing yeah, sounds out of surprising, the ordinary. Yeah. yeah it's mm -hmm. not surprising. It's just like, okay, yes. If this doesn't push us, I don't yeah. know what will. Yeah, exactly. Great points. And, um, the only difference is now is that now scientists are actually honing in on the mechanism of action, right? Because it's obvious pollution, cancers, other diseases, other health issues. But I, I think this is just a great um, way to, I mean, backing up all of this with the science, right? The science is now revealing exactly how and what the impacts are of a polluted environment. And I think, you know, there are skeptics of like climate change and, oh, is it real? Or why should we take it seriously? Well, there you go. Like now the science is there to, to show why we should be taking it seriously because um, it is really having an impact on not only our environment, but obviously we're interlinked with our environment, right? So- on, on human health. So I think it's really important for this kind of research to be coming out now to serve as a wake up call to perhaps people who are still skeptics of climate change and don't take uh, the, the environment and air pollution as seriously as maybe they should. All right, let's move on to our next story. And this is um, a very interesting story actually, which began um, sort of a couple of years ago, it um, was in the news for, yeah, the past couple of years, but it actually began quite a while ago before that, a couple of decades ago, with um, a woman who is behind some new cancer research and um, cancer research and neurological research. She's being utilized uh, for a lot of different um health studies now because she possesses a unique um, trait or ability to be able to sense um, diseases like Parkinson's disease. So 
And um, recently, scientists at the University of Manchester in the UK um, sought out to develop a test to detect Parkinson's disease based on this woman's unique sense of smell um, because she can detect uh, diseases like Parkinson's. So this lady's name is Joy Milne, and she's from Scotland. And one day she noticed that her husband smelled a bit different when he came home from work. And she recalls that he had like a a yeast-like slash musky smell on him, which was different from his usual musky smell, which uh, she recalls she uh, fell in love with and, and has loved you know, in all her years being married uh, to him. And she noticed this change when he was 33 years old, 12 years before he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And the couple is now in their uh, 70s, I believe. So intrigued by um, Joy's observation, scientists decided to research what she could smell and whether that could be used to help identify people with Parkinson's disease. And because of this, um, Joy Milne has been nicknamed the woman who can smell Parkinson's. So the researchers set out to identify specific molecules on the skin that could be linked to Parkinson's um, to help diagnose if someone has it. And to help diagnose the disease years, if not decades earlier, um, before uh, traditionally it's diagnosed. And uh, as we know, we've learned a lot about diseases like Parkinson's, that early detection is is key to help manage uh, and treat the disease. And things like diet and exercise can greatly modulate uh, the uh, progression and outcomes of diseases, of neurologic, uh, neurological diseases like Parkinson's. So early detection is key. And this is what, you know, many scientists around the world are working on for many diseases uh, beyond neurological diseases like Parkinson's. So, um, yeah, so based on uh, Joy Milne's ability to um, sense or identify specific molecules on the skin uh, through her sense of smell, uh, researchers uh, set out, I think in 2019 or before that, to help um, to potentially develop a test that could help diagnose uh, Parkinson's. And in 2019, um, the researchers announced that they had identified specific molecules linked to the disease found in skin swabs. And so now there is a uh, test that has been developed, although it's in its early stages. The scientists are very excited that about it, what its potential could be. It could be used um, in hospitals and and. Um, generally just to detect um, Parkinson's. So um, yeah, and they expect that this test could help develop um, detect Parkinson's up to over a decade early. So in their preliminary work, uh, the researchers had asked um, Joy Milne to actually smell some t-shirts that were worn by people who had Parkinson's um, versus those who did not. And lo and behold, she was able to correctly identify the t-shirts that had been worn by Parkinson's patients. But, um, and in, in addition to that, she actually was able to, to also identify a t-shirt from the group of people that did not have Parkinson's. And then eight months later, that individual who, with, uh, who had worn that shirt was diagnosed with the disease. So 
pretty uh, significant and pretty cool stuff. So upon uh, further investigation and, you know, in developing this test, the scientists um, believed that the scent may have been caused by, may be caused by a chemical change in sebum, which is um, the oil found in skin. And so there could be a chemical change in sebum that is triggered by Parkinson's. And uh, the researchers hoped that uh, find that this finding could lead to a test, and now they've uh, developed um, a potential test for it. So, um, yeah, and um, basically now Joy Milne is being tapped to maybe help identify other diseases as well. And she was, you know, talking recently in an interview about how uh, she's been helping. Um, to identify other diseases ranging from cancer to uh, other metabolic uh, diseases as well. So she's, uh, uh, and also tuberculosis, I believe. So that's another disease that um, she has been working on as a cancer researcher, essentially. Um, and uh, since she has a very high sensitivity to smell, she says that, you know, it's it's hard for her to go shopping either very early or very late because of people's perfumes. So she can't go in the chemical aisle in the supermarket and things like that. So um, while her very unique and very um, beneficial sense of smell is helping aid, you know, research on things like TB, Parkinson's and cancer, um, she says it's kind of a curse sometimes because uh, uh, it's, it's just, She's very hypersensitive to uh, to smells. And um, there's also an ethical issue that kind of arises here where she says that sometimes she can smell people who have Parkinson's while she's just walking down the street. But she's been told by medical ethicists that she can't tell them because of obvious ethical uh, reasons. Um, so, yeah, I mean, can you imagine someone just coming up to you and being like, well, I think you have this disease because I can smell it on you. And this is not a new concept. Um, you know, I think there are certain diseases that uh, some people, you anecdotal evidence of how people can smell certain diseases on people and, and dogs have that kind of a, you know, strong sense of smell too. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. I thought it was a very interesting story. And again, this began like several years ago, but the latest is that, that test that the scientists set out to develop, it's, uh, it's kind of, um, it, it's been developed. And so they're, uh, they were excited to reveal that. Well, to answer that uh, first question, I, if someone came up to me and said, you have uh, Alzheimer's, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, you're crazy. Uh, or Parkinson's like, you're, you're crazy. Like you're, mm -hmm. you know, um, and yeah, that's, it's such an interesting, like ethical dilemma because yeah. some people, you know, would want to know, but mm -hmm. I feel like that's information you have to seek out rather than, you mm -hmm. know, just, just being told unwillingly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Unwillingly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, the first thing I thought of when you were talking about the story, uh, was dogs and mm -hmm. I'd written a story several years ago about, um, like drug sniffing dogs oh, and right. the way like how they smell and how it's different from how humans smell. And it just sounds like she has kind of a dog nose or like right. a super yeah. nose. Um, a super nose. <laughs> yeah. Or she like, I mean, I would love to know like the science behind her sense of smell. Um, right. yeah, yeah. And, and how like, you know, she 
like and also what it smells like I'd like what, to know, right? what do what you want to know though like. I mean I don't know if I want to know. oh you mean like what a disease like Parkinson's yeah smells yeah like. yeah yeah well, she was saying how it's like it smells almost yeasty and musky I guess like the musky smell from her husband still but it had like a yeast smell is what I came across what she was trying to describe it as but so how did yeah. she know it wasn't bread cooking and it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, she said that when her husband came home, she's like, go take a shower. Maybe it's something cause mm. uh, he's a doctor. He's, he's retired now, but you know, maybe something in the hospital or something. And so she's like, go take a shower. You know, you don't smell good. He comes back and he's still smelling like that. So yeah, she knew something was up, but I don't think she, yeah, she didn't act on it because I think just 12 years or 13 years later, he was diagnosed with it. But then she was able to link that with, with that somehow. But uh, yeah, she just said he just started smelling distinctly different from what he used to smell like. And also the other thing um, is that until there's like a pretty universal cure, mm. I think that's another reason that it's an ethical issue because if this was just like, oh, she can smell a, a cold or something kind of minor, it's like, okay, you can tell me that. I'm okay with hearing about yeah. that. But this is something that we're still working on, you know, finding cures and treatments. So mm. I think that's the other reason that it's a little touchier uh, in that area. Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of ethical concerns come up there um, with the diseases like like progressive diseases, especially mm -hmm. that are um, potentially life threatening. And so it's it's a lot. Yeah, definitely to think about and a lot of ethical dilemmas. But I mean, like with a lot of diseases, early detection is key, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole point of this is to you know, try to leverage, try to try to find out, um, using this woman's sense of smell and what she's smelling. And, um, you know, they've developed this test and the whole idea is to try to, um, diagnose Parkinson's, um, a lot earlier than it usually is because it's usually diagnosed at very late stages, mm -hmm. um, at the point where there have been significant um, physical changes in the brain. And so scientists are like, that's not when we want to see patients. Like we want to see them before those changes happen. And so this, the smell could be the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. That's the end of this episode of BX Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks everyone. And see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.